Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Well, good morning, church. So excited to be here. It's been a fun uh, Sunday already. It's been just a fun day of celebration for us in the first gathering, and so excited to continue uh, that today. I have a, a whole lot uh, to do, and so I'm going to just get into it. The majority of you uh, know my story. Um, you know I was raised in Metropolis, Illinois, southern tip of Illinois, biracial family to uh, uh, parents or addicts, and so uh, my folks have passed away. Both of them uh, died from cocaine overdoses in their death. I started following their footsteps in fifth grade. Uh, in eighth grade, started drinking. Ninth grade, I was sailing, and I followed that lifestyle, man, until I came to faith uh, 14 years ago. So we were raised uh, in a pretty, not impoverished family, but definitely a poor uh, family. The majority of their resources would go to narcotics instead of to us as kids. And I remember, um, there's a part of my story I've not shared that I want to share today, and it's not any better. It actually just gets a little bit worse. In fourth grade, um, our house caught on fire, and we lost everything. So we already didn't have very much, and then we lost literally everything that we had, and then we had to spend I don't about six months, I believe, um, living in a hotel room in the, at the best inn in Metropolis, Illinois. So just kind of picture a small little hotel room with two maybe full-size beds, not queens, not, definitely not a California king, but two little, I don't know, small beds for months, me and my sister and my mom and what clothes and stuff we did have uh, at the time. And so I knew what it was like to be poor even as a young kid, but even in that, I especially knew what it was like uh, to be poor. Well, while we were there, the insurance got its things worked out. We got a new house. It wasn't very big, but we got this new house. And I remember still uh, going in and the, the smell of new carpet. You guys know that smell, what I'm talking about? When you walk in, you just smell like, dang, this just smells so good. I remember the smell of new carpet. I remember laying on the carpet and like almost making like a carpet angel, you know, instead of a snow angel. Because it was new carpet. You could still see all the streaks. It was just, it was incredible. And, and I thought, man, like, this is so nice. And it's actually right around the time of Christmas. And so Christmas came, and fortunately, insurance had everything worked out. And Christmas, honestly, like, wasn't super joyful in our family. Except for that Christmas, it was. And so I woke up that Christmas morning kind of expecting it to be a little bit of a lull. Uh, and I opened my bedroom door, and there were gifts, like, throughout my whole entire house. They were literally everywhere. Everything that we had lost had been replaced. And I remember thinking, this is what it feels like to be rich. Like, this, this is what I've been missing out on, you know? And what's incredible about that is that I, I knew what it was like to be poor. I was poor. But even in the midst of that, I'll say poverty, man, I knew what it was like to be rich. What's beautiful about that is that this is exactly what happens in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The Apostle Paul is coming, and he's going to tell the church of Corinth. He's going to say, remember what it was like when you were poor. And man, but oh, you're so rich in Christ. Like, do you not, do you recall your salvation? Remember what you were like, Corinth. And we're going to get into that. And he calls them within the context of 2 Corinthians. Remember where you came from. You were poor before the cross. And now in Christ, 
wealthy beyond your imagination. And then he says, what we get to look at today, there's another church that's experiencing the same thing, and that is the church in Macedonia. They were poor, so poor, impoverished, far worse than I could have ever been, and yet in Christ, rich. And they gave far above what anyone saw coming. It's this incredible story. So for in order for me to do that, we've got a lot to do. You ready? We have three points, two exhortations, and one big idea. All right? You guys going to be able to do this with me? Yeah. All right. So three points are going to go like this for the note taker. And those are tuning online. Thanks for tuning in online. True generosity breeds generosity. First point. True generosity requires faith, actually requires you to profess faith. True generosity redeems greed. And then two exhortations, a physical and a financial call to action, which is going to be super fun to celebrate some stuff in there. And then lastly, your big idea, generosity flows from the cross. Listen here, if, if you miss everything else, if you do not come to a place where you see Jesus' arms wide and hands open, you will never open your arms or your hands to anyone else. Generosity only comes from the cross. Amen? All right, let's get into it. True generosity breeds generosity. When you're ready, say ready. Here we go. Verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, listen to this, a little wordy, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And so Paul comes again, not necessarily in this text right here, but in the context of 2 Corinthians, he comes in and he says, Corinthians, Corinth, do you remember where you came from? And so if you know anything about your Bible, there's a 2 Corinthians, which means there has to be a 1 Corinthians. And so in 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul writes to that church, and that church was all jacked up. We did a series on it like seven years ago called A Harlot and Her Hero, just looking at how dysfunctional the bride of Christ was then. And so if you've read through 1 Corinthians, then you might recall that they were doing crazy stuff, man. They were like getting drunk off the communion wine. They were overeating on the communion food. Their communion was a lot different than ours. And they were hoarding their food from the homeless people. We had men and women were having sexual relations with their step parents. We had a lot of dudes apparently at the time were dressing like ladies. That's not news right there in Corinth. And on top of all of that, okay, on top of all that, there was an incredible amount of persecution. So much so that Paul tells the church in Corinth, it would actually be better if you remain single because you might get hitched on Friday and hung up on something on Sunday. It's better that you remain single as I am single. And so like the incredible amount of persecution that has happened. So the church is all jacked up. Paul writes that first letter to him and is like, y'all need to repent of sin because you're getting wild. Y'all need to get out of college, okay, get in the church and start acting like it. Second Corinthians comes, check this out, and they have done that. They have repented. It's not that they're perfect. They're still a messy church. It's like every church is a messy church. Amen? <laughs> all right. And they have repented, though, confessed, repent. They're walking out their faith and their salvation and he's calling them within 2 Corinthians. He's saying, do you remember that? Like, do you remember how poor you were, how impoverished you were before the cross? And now, in Christ, like you were so rich beyond your imagination. You have so much. You have everything you need in and through the work of Jesus Christ. And he's saying that it's not just for you, Corinth. The grace of God did not just come to you, but the grace of God has surpassed you, and it's headed into the church of Macedonia. Listen to what the Macedonians 
are doing. And what they're doing is a fundraising campaign for the church in Jerusalem that's also being persecuted. This is during Paul's third missionary journey. They're being set inside of brass bulls and boiled alive. They have no money, they have no resources, and the Macedonian church, understanding who they are in Christ first, surrenders their resources for him. He says, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Just think about that. Generosity overflowed from a wealth of poverty and persecution. Does that make sense to us? Generosity overflowed from a wealth of poverty and persecution. The only thing the Macedonian church had was a wealth of poverty. The only thing that the Macedonian church had is they were rich in persecution, and yet they found joy in the Lord, and it led to generosity. Look at this. I wrote up this equation because it sounds so asinine to me what was in the scripture. I had to write it out and meditate on it. It says this. It looks like this. Is up there? Yeah. So just to be clear, persecution plus joy plus extreme poverty equals generosity. Who looks at that and goes, yep, that makes sense. As a matter of fact, sign me up for that team. That's the team that I want to serve on, right? That's it. It's on the seat back right there. You got a connection card, right? You get that out. Put that in the other account, right? The other, look, persecution plus joy plus extreme poverty equals generosity. We look at that and we think, nope. And yet as Christians, is that not the formula of the cross? Right? Leave it up for just a second for me. Is that not the formula of the cross? Right, Jesus Christ, who's the Lord of lords and the King of kings, is he not persecuted at the hands of men? Walks in perfection, comes and is brutally battered, beaten, persecuted for the, from the very people he comes to save, mind you. The writer of Hebrews would tell us that there was a joy that was set before the Lord that led him to endure the cross, and that joy that was set before Jesus was humanity, was those who would come to faith, that the church would be birthed, that they would be um, empowered by the Holy Spirit, they would advance out on the mission, and whenever Jesus looked at the cross, what the joy that surpassed the suffering of the cross was the reality that the church would be birthed. And that joy was such that it led him in and to and through the cross. And then there's also extreme Poverty. Jesus comes. He surrenders his kingdom, church. Like the whole kingdom surrenders it, dwells fully God, fully man, something he cannot undo because of a covenant he makes forever, fully God, fully man. Leaves everything he has behind. That's not too impoverished. I don't don't know. He says some interesting things like a, a prophet has no honor in his town. Foxes at least have dens and holes to sleep in, but oh, where will I lay my head? If that's not enough, you think about the, that's physical, about the spiritual extreme poverty where we just sing about, where the Father turns his face away as Jesus is hanging on the cross for the first time in eternity, like in ever, in time, the Father turns his face away. That sounds like extreme poverty, being left with nothing to hang for us. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus, who owns everything, lose everything so that we could have literally everything? That's grace, church. That's what we don't get. That's the generosity of the cross. That's what allows us to be family, heirs and co-heirs in Christ Jesus. What allows us to experience an adoption and sons and daughters into the family. Listen to this. I'm going to let the Bible do it for me. Romans 8. Turns out Paul's better at this than me. So Romans 8, 12 says this. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh alone, you will die. But if by the Spirit... 
You put to death the deeds of the body, oh, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, fear, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of what? Adoption as sons. I wish I had 45 more minutes. The doctrine of adoption is one of my favorite. I think we can, we'll, we'll talk about it. But by whom we cry? <laughs> we're going to talk about it. That's it, man. We'll just eat lunch when we're all done. Okay. By whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself, I just love it so much, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Oh, man. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I'm going to read Ephesians and then to create some more time. Ephesians 1, 11 says this. In him, then, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. That means it was always the plan. Predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him, that's Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. And I thought we should take communion. Let's just be done. We can be done. But it's so good. So what is he saying? Persecution plus joy plus extreme poverty equals generosity. Or what we see in the, gener- the generous acts of the cross is that Jesus Christ, in going to the cross, resurrecting a new life, sends us the Holy Spirit. Not as if that's not enough. He calls us sons. That's not to, to set women aside, but it's to use the language of their time. The son received the firstborn inheritance from the father. So like everything that was the father's is the firstborn sons. In our case, the firstborn son is literally the king of kings and like the Lord of lords. He's the son of God. So everything that is Jesus Christ literally becomes ours. That's what it means to be adopted as sons. We are legally adopted into the family of God. We're spiritually adopted into the family of God. And it only happens because Jesus pays the price that we ourselves could never pay. He brings us into the kingdom. Now, what's even more beautiful in light of what we read is that the Holy Spirit, even in the midst of our depravity, church, keeps our inheritance sealed for us in the kingdom of God. You cannot outsin the cross of Christ. It just He just lavishes generosity, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. No matter how, as a professing Christian, no matter how bad, no matter how wayward, no matter how distant, sealed in Christ because of his work, not because of your work. That's an incredible picture of generosity they were given. Listen, if Jesus would have just gave a little, it would not have been very generous, would it? But whenever Jesus says it is finished, it's because it is, in fact, finished, right? Everything has been done in Christ. He is literally paid all of it. How does he do that? Through extreme suffering, through extreme poverty, driven by an incredible vision of joy that is us, the church, the bride of Christ, sons who have been adopted. Does that make sense? Cool. That was like, that was free. So, listen, generosity is not simply found in the act of giving. People can give things all the time. Generosity is found in the depths that one is willing to go to give. That's the difference in the cross and literally everything else. He didn't just give a little bit. He didn't like give you, he wasn't like, let me, hey, let me just help you out with that, but then you're going to have to handle the monthly payments. He was like, no, it's 100% finished, paid in full in every single way. We clear? All right, second point is this. True generosity then requires faith. 
generosity, hopefully that bread, generosity, hopefully it begins to breed it in you. True generosity requires faith. Verse 3. For they, that's the Macedonian church, gave according to their means, as I can testify, Paul says, saw that, and beyond their means, that is, of their own accord. Verse 4. Begging us earnestly, listen, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Gosh. So this poor, persecuted church gave offerings to the point that they had to physically profess faith in Jesus to provide for them. I want you to think about this for just a second. I don't want to just skip over this. This is something that is, for the most part, outside of our framework as Americans. Like the Macedonian church gave so much money that they gathered so many of their resources together that they literally had to profess faith in God in a way that would reveal he's actually a living God, that he can move and do things apart from them. That is crazy to me that they would do that. I don't know about you. I'm going to level with you. My faith is not that. I might be the wrong guy to be up here. I don't live a life of generosity like that. I'm going to tell you right now. And yet, this is what they model for us. What didn't happen is that they didn't come and say, well, I see the church of Jerusalem is being put inside of bulls and drug outside of their house and lit ablaze. Uh, but I was really like, like, I got this remodel I'm, work, I'm really trying to work through right now. And I was thinking maybe like I could just throw some money at that later, you know? Or they didn't come and they didn't say, well, like, I know, but like, do we really, like, like you want 10%? <laughs> like, I mean, is that what we're doing? I already give to my church, so like, I don't know what to do about this. You see what I'm saying? Like, it wasn't, that wasn't the conversation. Rather, what happens is this Macedonian church, man, they come in and they, you understand, especially as you walk with them through church planting, you see everything planted in, in Philippi, and you can, read, you can read all this in the New Testament. What that happens is they come in and they see this big, beautiful, incredible picture of Jesus. And they look at him on the cross, and they see him resurrected. And whenever Paul says in Corinthians, literally, all things are put under subjection to him. Everything is underneath his feet. When they read that, they're like, I believe that. Literally, everything that is here in creation, there is a Lord that stands over it, and he deserves all of the glory and all of the honor. And I just get to be a recipient. I'm an owner of nothing. I'm a steward of everything. And so they look at all that they've been given. They're like, everything that I have has been given to advance the mission of God. Not my mission. Not my earthly agenda. Everything has been given so that we can advance the mission. Listen, Acts 2 words it like this is a different church, but this is what they would do to put it in perspective. Acts 2.42. And all who believed, listen, and all who believed, not just some. Notice that word, all. I think if if they meant some, they would have put that, yeah? And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, a common mission, common focus, common understanding of the gospel. Verse 45, and they, all of them, were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to who? To the ones that they liked in their missional communities? To the ones who didn't get on their nerves? Yeah, even the ones they didn't like, right? To all. Y'all know if you're in an MC, there's some cats you don't like, right? This is a safe space. This is a safe place. Amen? All right, come on. We ain't no different than Corinth. Come on. Distributing proceeds to all as any had any. 46, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread, communion in their homes together like we do. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with 
all of the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The early church was so generous. I'm going to use it this way. The early church was so generous, it became an apologetic for the gospel. What I mean by that is that in their generosity, it was such that it dispelled any sort of thing someone didn't believe about Christianity. Their level of generosity was such that it trumped what you could argue with me about in light of the gospel. They were like, they have to, it has to be true. Like what they're experiencing has to be true. And the way that they loved and served, they will know you by the way you love one another. I believe Jesus says red letter, if I'm not mistaken, right? That's what was happening here in the early church. And so this isn't like this new thing in Macedonia. This is what happened whenever the church was birthed. And and Paul is laying out, this church here was so like, so wrapped up in Christ that they literally, listen, had to beg for the opportunity to bring relief to the saints in Jerusalem. My God, like I want that. You don't want that? I don't have that. I'm trying to be as transparent as I can be. Like I, this week though, I prayed like God, like I want to be like, I want to be like Jesus. But secondly, this is like right here in front of me. I want to be so enamored in Christ that I literally hold nothing. Like everything is negotiable in my life. I'm not quite there. I'm a work in progress, but I pray that this week. I want to be so enamored in Christ that I hold nothing as my own. God, help me to believe everything is under subjection to you. That you are all that you say you are. Help me have everything open-handed. My gosh, like, could you imagine what freedom we would have if we could believe the gospel? Gosh, we would be so free. I've experienced this sort of generosity in my life. And so I'm thankful for the opportunities to get to go abroad and, and do missions abroad. We got to spend some time in Kenya. And actually, someone gave me a Kenyan bracelet that uh, lives there earlier. And it's kind of fun. But... So we got to go to Kenya, and um, we were there overseeing churches. Like Pastor David mentioned earlier, we had, at that time, five church plants in Kenya. Now we have 10 church plants in Kenya. At that time, we had no missional communities. Uh, now we have 23 missional communities in Kenya. We have a school in Kenya, and we, in this room, are specifically building a school in Kenya. So we're doing some pretty fun and incredible things there, really really big things, actually. Not, I don't want to downplay that. But we're there. We're there to encourage them, to love on them. Uh, to engage them with the gospel, to, to just kind of get some eyes on the situation. And, and in that, they, uh, they end up just like totally revealing generosity to us. And so you might remember if you were part of Heights when I did this trip, first or second time I got to go, uh, they gave us chicken and watermelon. You might remember that story by any chance? They gave us chicken and watermelon. Now, if you don't know, if you've never been to, anybody have been to Kenya? Okay, you go to East, oh yeah, Craig, with me, yeah, okay. You remember that chicken? Hey, how hood was that chicken, dude? It was not good, hood with an H. That was the most tough in eastern Kenya. Eastern Kenya. It was so tough. Oh, we were talking about it as the people were leaving the service. It was so tough. You could boil that chicken. It's like, what else you got? It was just the worst for chicken. Anyway, super thankful for it. So we took that chicken. We took that chicken. We named it Rose. And then we went and negotiated a, a semi free dinner at the hotel. We killed that chicken, ate it that night. But. In that super, if you haven't got to go abroad, you should give a Pastor David and have him take you somewhere. And um, so, anyway, so we're there. This is the point I'm trying to make. They gave us this chicken and watermelon. Here's what's important about that: they did not have chicken and watermelon. Okay, they did not have a farm where they grew watermelon. They did not have a farm where they had chicken. Where we were at, we were in Eastern Kenya. is very, very, very poor. The pastor that lived there lived in literally an eight by eight. It was the size of this this square right here. Um, with his wife and his baby. He had lost his first baby because of the conditions and lived in those conditions right then. They had nothing. When I tell you nothing, I need you to think 
nothing. And so the church there, while we're there to love them, as Americans who have more than we know what to do with, they literally have to take from one another, like inviting and take from one another, and then they have to put together the funds, buy this chicken, buy this watermelon, so they can bless us. That's an act of generosity. The equivalent of that would be like, I want you to give me six months at least of your salary that's coming and wipe out your 401k and give that to me. And then on faith, just pray that God's going to provide for you. Like, that's what it's like there. They have no idea where their meal's coming from, where their clothes are coming from. The church literally, like in a very literal way, present time, has to come together and share their resources or they don't have any resources. You make sense? Like, that's what generosity looks like. It's what the Macedonian church. And so whenever Paul's talking about that, he's saying, man, that's what they did. Like, they had, they gave above and beyond what they could have ever afforded to give because they drew together as a church body, and they did this so they could serve their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. It's incredible. They gave, listen, to the point of dependency. Let me just ask a question, not even about finances. Let me just ask this professing Christian in the room. Is there a current area in your life where you're walking out Christianity in a way where you have to trust that Jesus is alive and active? In in any area. Maybe sharing the gospel. Maybe it is financially. Maybe it is surrendering resources. Maybe it's opening your home. I mean, can you confidently say, yes, there are areas of my life I'm walking out? Because again, like when I look at my life, man, I'm, I'm not scared to share the gospel with someone. That doesn't scare me a bit. For some of you, you're like, that's the most terrifying reality I could ever step into. So I'm looking at this, I'm like, there's not a lot of areas in Corey's life where I have to walk out my faith in such a way, I have to actually trust that Jesus is alive and active. But that's what this early church did. And it's what people are doing right now globally. Pastor David can tell you way more about that than I'll ever be able to tell you about it, right? There are very few disciplines, if we're honest, that actually require you to profess faith in a living and active God as Christians. Like, you can read the Bible, and if you decide you're not going to do anything with the Bible, it doesn't require much faith, does it? Or you can spend time praying on your way to work, but if you already know in your heart, like, I'm not going to respond to the prayer that I'm praying, it doesn't require much from you. What's interesting about in this culture, in America specifically, in regard to finances, our number one cultural idol, by the way, the moment you talk about finances, you immediately start to see things in your mind that you don't want to let go of. What that reveals, what that anxiety reveals is so helpful and so telling because it reveals the little gods that we worship every day of our lives. It reveals the God in us that we look at and say, you must be alive and active right now. You are the idol that is sustaining me right now. Like, that's why we have to talk about this together as a family. It's so important for us. I hope you feel uncomfortable. Like I hope as we're talking about things that you just things just start shooting out of your heart and out of your mind. Like, like our family, we want to do an addition to the house. And now we have this capital campaign. And we're like, well, dang, how do we do everything? The reality is we probably can't. And so it hurts then, because I'm like, I had this dream, I have this financial goal, but what's revealed in there is a level of greed, where instead of wanting to advance the mission of God, I want to advance the Johnson family's mission on Chapel Court, and make our house look a certain way. That's what greed does, right? Like, think, we're going to stay here. Think, think about greed for just a minute. Greed promises you a kingdom that it can never provide for you. Greed promises you an identity that it can never give you. Greed ultimately promises you something it cannot afford. You know what that is? Salvation. That's what it promises. If I have 
this, if I acquire this, if I hold on to this, people will see me a certain way. People will know that I can have what they have. People will see that I'm powerful. This will make me feel a certain way. It'll invoke in me. It'll bring in me a sense of comfort, a sense of security, a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, and on and on and on. And all greed does is require you to sacrifice. It never sacrifices. It requires you to pay a price so that you can receive something from it. It's the very definition of religion. You see that? It's the very thing that we war against in this church every day. It's the definition of legalism. You need to do something a little bit more so that you can feel a certain way about yourself. That's what greed does. It promises you something it can never afford, and that thing is salvation. The Macedonian church that Paul is talking about here looked at the cross and saw Jesus is the only one that was willing to pay what would ultimately set them free. He's the only one that was willing to die so that they could experience salvation. He was the only one to pay what they could never pay for themselves. And he does it through the cross and the resurrection. And then I love this. It says this, verse 5. And we'll hit the third point. True generosity redeems greed. Verse 5. And this, not as we expected. I love the Bible because it is so real and genuine. Like, if you're going to convince someone of Jesus and his mission, would you ever say, hey guys, we didn't see that coming? You'd be like, no, like the cross was so powerful. Of course it led them to do this. Of course, but empowered by the Holy Spirit, enriched by God, of course they stormed the gates of hell. Paul says, hey, bro, we didn't know that was going to happen. That was crazy, right? Verse 5, and this, not as we expected, we didn't know, but they gave themselves, listen here, first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. True generosity redeems greed. I'm going to do some play on words here. How do you grow in generosity? You get greedy. How do you grow in generosity? You get greedy. Did you say get greedy? I did. You get greedy. You just use your natural human wiring and disposition, and you let the Lord redeem it. You get Greedy. You get greedy for time with Jesus, man. You move heaven, earth, and hell out of the way to get into his presence. How many times in Psalms, over 15 weeks, did the psalmist say, give me your word, give me your precepts, give me your decrees, give me your commands, give me your voice, give me your presence? How many times did the psalm say, God, give me what is rightfully mine? So greedy, right? Can I use it that way? That's what you do. If you want to be set free to generosity, you get greedy about the right things, and it's getting to Jesus first. He says, Paul says, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. And then, as they're walking with the Lord by the will of God to everything else, right? They're rightfully aligned, standing before the cross, the resurrected Lord, empowered now by the Holy Spirit. They're giving themselves over to Jesus. And then they respond to everything else. I wrote in my notes, if you're going to be greedy, dude, about money, then get your money. Like, run to the, we sing the song, run to the Father. Fall into grace. And what happens when you come before the cross? I mean, you find out the waters of grace are just deeper and deeper and deeper and still deeper than you could have ever imagined. And he just invites you to drink it up. He says, just come and drink and drink and drink and have your fill and then just drink some more. So much generosity, so much grace given from the Father through the Son. If you're going to grow in generosity, get greedy about your time with Jesus. Stop playing games. Get greedy 
Take your faith serious and run to him. And then watch what happens. An overflow of generosity will happen. Not just financially. That's trivial. That's simple. I'm talking about radical generosity as you engage the radical attributes of the cross. Second then, what do you do? You give yourself over to Jesus through repentance and faith. First, you confess, church. Like this thing doesn't happen apart from repentance and faith. You have to come to the Father and confess, hey, I am greedy. Dude, I hold my hands super tight all the times. I like to be in control. I like power. I like my schedule. I like to navigate everything in this world. God, I am short-sighted. I don't think a lot about your mission. I don't think a lot about your kingdom. More often than not, I think a lot about me and what I can accomplish this week. And I hold my hands like this. That's a confession. That's part of it. You confess that to God. You confess it. What the areas you can see clear as day, hopefully at least the areas you can't see right now. Right? You confess that, and then you repent. Interesting enough, most Christians don't know what it means to repent. That means you look at the cross, and you look at how Jesus is better than everything you just confessed. So if you come to him and you say, I hold my hands tight, I love power, I love being in control, although I'm ridden with anxiety, I still love those things for some reason. Right? I can't let go of them. I want to manage my kids. I want to manage the household. I want to hold on to everything tight. And then you look up at him, confession. Then you look at him, repentance. You say, my God, how are your hands so open to me? How are your arms so wide to me? How are you so giving? Salvation alone was enough, and then you sent me your spirit, the very power that birthed the cosmos. And if that was not enough, you have invited me into your kingdom forevermore. And your spirit, even on my worst days, seals an inheritance for me in your kingdom that I come to you filthy rags that I am, and you just look at me and you say, I know. That's why I went to the cross. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And you just drink the waters of grace in. Over and over and over. That's what it looks like to walk out repentance and faith. Confession, repentance, and faith. It's not something you do one time. Whoever sold you that is a liar. It is every day. And sometimes it's every hour. If you have kids, you know. You know, right? God, here we are again, Lord. Mad at him again, Lord, you know? Remind me of the Father's heart, Lord. I need it, right? Dude, confession, repentance, faith, and it'll drive you to missions. That's why we talk about missional community. It will land you in mission. Like, how do you not talk about this? Like, this father, this family you've been invited into, how do you look at Jesus? Arms wide open, hands wide open, grace and mercy just bestowed upon you forevermore, and not run to someone and say, you've got to meet my dad. Let me tell you about my dad. He's so inviting. He's so accepting. It's a thrill to get to walk with him. He's literally changed every single aspect of my life. Let me tell you all about how good he is, how merciful he is, how contagious he is. And then they go live on mission. That's how you advance the kingdom. That's the joy that was set before him in the cross. That's what he saw happening. That's what we get to see happening as a church. It happens through missional community. You should get into one. Let me get back on my notes. When's the last time, when's the last time you were overwhelmed by the generosity of the cross? Like, when's the last time you stood before it as a professing Christian and you just thought, oh my gosh. It's so cumbersome and heavy and freeing all at the same time. When's the last time you just felt overwhelmed by the generosity? Here's, I wrote this, I want to be clear on this. The more aware of your sin you become, the more you desire the cross. 
The more you see the cross, the more aware of your sin you become. It's reciprocal. The more you desire the cross, the more you seek the cross because you see your need in the cross. The more you seek the cross, the more you get to experience grace. And the more you get to experience grace, the more you clearly understand generosity. Do you know how hard it is to not forgive someone when you know you've been forgiven? Do you know how hard it is to not give to someone when you know that your father has given you literally everything he could ever give you? It's almost an impossibility outside of sin. If you're going to be greedy, be greedy for Jesus, and most certainly be greedy for confession, repentance, and faith. Three points, two exhortations for you. These are the two exhortations. Let me be clear about this. Over the next four weeks, I'm going to invite you to serve more and give more than maybe you've ever been asked in your whole life. Let me be really clear and unapologetic about that. Over the next four weeks, my hope is to invite you to give more financially, to give more of your physical self, to give more of your time than you've literally ever been asked to give. Hopefully. I hope that's my expectation. There's two ways I'm going to call you to do this. First is a physical call to action. Let me be clear. If you're a guest in the house, this is a family conversation. Okay? But this is the expectation, so you can have a clear expectation for you. If you're a guest, welcome to Heights. This is what it looks like to be pastored at Heights Church. There's a physical call to action that I want to give you. Uh, every week we say we're about three things. We're about the gospel, we're about community, we're about mission. We actually mean that. We don't just say that as a buzzword here. That is our vision. That's the vision God gave us, and it's the vision that we cling to. The reason that you find our culture here attractive is because we take gospel, community, and mission serious. We actually take it serious. That's why there's an attractiveness whenever you've come and you've stepped in and you have engaged. Based off a survey that I've sent out in light of the Capitol campaign a few months ago, the survey came back and revealed to me that only 60% of our people are currently serving and giving. Prior to COVID, some churches would applaud that. That's a failure for us. Prior to COVID, over 80% of our people failed. We didn't do that 20-80 reverse thing. We never have, not in the history of our church. Here's the deal. We ain't going to do it now. Okay. The reason that the culture is attractive, the reason that the pastors literally, I mean, we toil over the scriptures. right? We're not out downloading sermons from sermonexpress.com or whatever some of these (laughs) fools do. We plead with the Father, dude. We plead with him. You hear me? And we ask, like, what do you have for our body? What do you have for our people? And it's hard, and it's rigorous, and it's miserable sometimes, right? I know we make it look easy. It's hard, okay? (laughs) It is hard. The reason that we get to, though, listen, the reason that the culture, preaching and teaching culture is high. We have a high discipleship culture. We have a high vision culture. We have a high church planting culture, high leadership development culture. We have that. Listen, as we continue to grow, if you want to maintain the culture that is so attractive, you have to physically step into it. Otherwise, it's going to hinder the culture. I'm going to quote Matt Chandler to make you laugh. Matt Chandler said a few months ago to his church, if you're looking for a place to come, sit down for an hour and a half, and drink a good cup of coffee, I hope you hate the coffee here. That's what he said. (laughs) Hope you hate the coffee here. Is what he said. I would echo the same thing. If you're looking for a place just to kind of camp out for an hour and a half, you don't really want to take your faith serious. Still talking to Christians, you don't want to take your faith serious. I hope the coffee here is miserable for you. Hope it's miserable because what will happen is as we continue to grow, that ripple effect will affect the way that we as pastors get to lead. And by God's grace, we're doing okay. 
Like we're sticking to the gospel, we're sticking to community, and we're trying our best to live on mission local and globally. But it requires the sheep, the people of God, to actually step up and step in. Today's the day. Listen, today's the day. Download Church Center app and get plugged in. This is a plea from the pastor to your people. 80% is the goal for our church, not 60. People would cheer 60. We don't cheer. That's a failure. You understand? That's an exhortation. That's what exhortation feels like if you've not felt that before. Secondly, there's a financial call to action. This is so exciting. We as your pastors are giving you the opportunity to let go of much of what is anchoring you in greed. That's the purpose of the capital campaign. I'll be honest with you. When we did our first capital campaign, we shot for $555,500. God provided. I genuinely thought, hey, we're just trying to raise some money. We're just trying to raise the money. We've got a building that's coming eventually. We don't know, even know where that building's at. And by God's grace, in the midst of a uh, pandemic, he met and exceeded our expectations, didn't he? He crushed that thing. He did that. We didn't do that. He did that. We stopped talking about the capital campaign when COVID hit, unless Chris called you and said, you can stop giving. And God still exceeded. People kept giving, and God still exceeded our expectations in that. I thought we were just raising money. That was my own immaturity as a pastor. What I realized and what I saw is the maturity that comes from people when you invite them to step away from greed and step into generosity. It literally, it changed so many of your lives, right? So I I stand today full of confidence in what God's calling us to do here. Before, three years ago, I was pretty timid. I was like, man, we got to raise this money. I don't know what to do. Now I have seen countless people. I've seen people come to faith. We've seen families grow together. We've seen maturity come. That's what I'm inviting you into. And I do it with a great deal of gospel confidence because I've seen it happen. And many in the room have given to that. So thank you. For the rest of you in the room, I want to invite you to give. I want to invite you to tithe and give to the capital campaign because I also did some other math on that survey I sent out. And do you know this? If our church gave the way it should give, we'll say under a tithe, we could pay for this building in cash by the end of the year without a capital campaign. And I'm not exaggerating. I might be two months off on that. If folks gave the way that the, the scriptures called them to give, which is not a 10% anymore, but it's Jesus is Lord over everything. And he's called you to serve his kingdom. We're financially great. We're not doing this because we need money. Right? We're doing this because we get to call you into deeper maturity in Christ by stepping away from greed, experiencing generosity. Now, just as Paul called Corinth to see the Macedonian church give, hoping that the generosity would breed their generosity. So also, I get to do the same thing today. This is incredible, man. We had a leadership dinner uh, just a few weeks ago, I think two weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, If you weren't invited, it's because we don't have enough space because we need a bigger building to invite you into things. (laughs) And so we we invited, uh, I don't know, 28 families, Doug, right? 28 families come. Some were singles, some were couples. Um, 50% of them had given to the previous campaign. Uh, 50% of them had, are new to Heights in the last two years, had never given to a capital campaign for either Collinsville Community or uh, Heights Church. And so we shared the vision packet with them that we would invite you to take on the way out. There's also a decision packet in that. I want you to read over it, like genuinely. Take the next four weeks to genuinely read over that. We only gave them seven days, and they knocked it out of the park. You're going to hear in a second. Giving you four weeks to genuinely seek prayer. This might be the first time you ever pray together as a family. Pray with your kids about it. Give their allowance, some of their allowance. Invite them into this thing with you. Okay, 28 families came, read over the stuff. We give them seven days. Of the $675,000, those who were able to make the meeting uh, pledged, as I wrote this, 
$352,460, 52%. Okay, you don't want to clap? Don't clap. Nope. No, 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 no. You missed the opportunity. You can clap about this. Don't clap at that. You can clap at this. On the way out, one of the families that did not get to give me the pledge gave me their pledge, $20,000. On the way out the door, hey, we talked about it. Sorry we're a little late. So actually, $372,000, maybe that'll make you clap, $460, dude. Crazy. That's just 28 families. There, there are literally 125 more families they could give to this thing. We, we're not, we're not in over our head. We're not. We haven't bitten off more than we can chew. Like this is, this is easy for. This should be easy for us to do. It should be easy for us to do. So May 22nd, uh, we're going to ask you to give those pledges uh, in this box. I think that story that David shared was absolutely incredible. I love that story. So good, meaningful. It's really good. Um, we're going to invite you to give your pledge, and then, listen here, then we're going to invite you, in that same time, we're going to ask you to give 10% of your total pledge, if you're able to do so, so we can have that money in the account for these, this remodel and some of these other things that we have to do uh, before we can get in there, okay? So the pledge, May 22nd, 10% of that pledge uh, up front. Three points, two exhortations, one big idea. Stand up with me. Stand with me. What's up, babe? Oh, girl. <laughs> Well, here you go, girlfriend. <laughs> Dang. How much you pay her to do that? <laughs> I mean, if we're honest, we're really doing it for all these kids anyway, so. All right, three points, two exhortations, one big idea. The big idea was this. Generosity flows from the cross. I and mean, if all you hear is a series on money, I think you missed the point. Uh, every week, we're going to talk about Jesus and how generous he is and what he's done uh, for us. And so communion, we're going to take communion together as a family. Jeremy, y'all want to come on up? Um, communion affords us the opportunity here to be reminded once again of the generosity of the cross in Christ. And so if you did not grab a communion cup on the way in, feel free to grab one in the, out of the baskets up front. That's totally culturally normal for you to head up there and, and get a... Before you start opening it up, though, let me, read, let me read to you before you start rattling the papers, the wrappers. It says this, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So for those of you that are in Christ, this is a meal that is for you. As you stand there holding these elements, you see the cup, which represents Christ's blood, spilt for you. You see the bread, which represents Christ's body, broken in your place as your substitute. Communion is not a religious event. We say this every week, and we mean this as well. It's a redemptive event. So when you take communion, you're given the opportunity to confess, to say, God, I am greedy with lots and lots and lots of things. And yet, as I take these elements in, I'm reminded of just how open-handed you have been with me. You've literally given me everything from salvation to inheritance. And as if that were not enough, listen to this, as if that were not enough, you have communion is a foreshadowing of what's called the Messianic banquet, where we get to meet Jesus, and he meets us with the best, meets us with the best wines and the best of meats forever. 
like the grace that we've been given and the generosity he's given us now is just simply meant to attract us to what's coming in the future. It just continues forever and forever and forever and forever. And in 17 million years from now, you're not going to care about that addition on your house. I'll tell you that. You're going to be singing with the King of Kings, with the seraphim angels, 10,000 times, 10,000 singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Communion is a foreshadowing of that. Nothing less and a whole lot more than that. For those of you that are in Christ, feel free to take and feast. You're ready.